Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and we're recording this on July 19th, a day early. For today's healthcare show, we're going to talk earnings season a little bit, but first we're covering a game of red light, green light between the FDA and oncology developer Juno Therapeutics. I've got guest Todd Campbell on the line. Are you ready to dive in? I am. What an interesting story uh, this is. It really was interesting to watch, and it all it happened very quickly. So uh, on, do you want to go? Right, much more quickly than I think anyone was anticipating. Yeah, the initial coverage. Well, <laughs> let's let's back up a little bit and say what happened. So <laughs> on July eighth, the FDA put one of Juno's trials on clinical hold, meaning nobody new can enroll and you can't give patients the experimental therapy. And this was their lead trial. It was of their most important CAR T therapy, which is a um, it's called JCAR 015. It's being studied for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, so type of blood cancer. And what happened was two patients in the trial died, and the FDA said, whoa, 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 hold on. Yeah, in cancer treatment in trials, they're very, very conscious of the fact that you know you've got disease that can kill you if it's not treated, right? But you don't want to, you get the, the treatment has to be safe too. So they're watching these this that dynamic very, very closely. And yeah, especially for earlier studies. I mean, this was phase two when safety is still priority. Right. In the phase one trials that have been done on this drug um, involves a relatively limited patient pool. I mean, this even if you include every trial that's being studied for the CAR-Ts that Juno's working on, you're only talking about, I think it's 130-ish patients. Um, so, you, you know, the, it's not what you call a lot of patients that you're trying to evaluate um, the data on. Uh, that being said, it was very surprising to people because, you know, while uh, there have been cases of adverse events, most of those cases have been tied to uh, cytokine, cytokine release syndrome uh, or, and even cytokine storms in some cases that have been pretty easily uh, corrected by adjusting dosage and, and stuff like that using corticosteroids and some of the other things they use to try and keep those in check. So the fact that people, these patients, had passed away because of brain swelling, which is a you know was the result of neurotoxicity uh, in response to the therapy, um, that immediately caused the FDA and Juno to say, "Whoa, whoa, we got to figure this out. We can't enroll any more patients. Let's try and nail down what caused these deaths." Because you not only had the two that just happened, but there had been one in back in May, and there had been one last fall. Uh, that had also passed away in, in these trials. So we now had four patients that had passed away. And obviously, um, you, you need to nail down what's the cause of that before you can put more patients at risk. And it appears that they did nail down what the cause was. Um, it's saying- funny, right, Christine, at the day that they announced that the FDA was putting the trial on hold, they were also announcing, we believe we know what the problem is. And exactly. we can get it to- it's crazy how quickly that happened. It really is, but it seems like a, a pretty clear link when they added this new chemotherapy to the trial, thinking that it would help these CAR T cells take hold faster. And instead, they're saying that that is what led to the neurotoxicity that caused the brain swelling. Right. Let's let's back up a little bit again for our, our listeners here. Um, these CAR T drugs, essentially, what we're talking about is re-engineering 
T cells from a patient so that they can get reintroduced back into the body, seek out and destroy cancer cells by binding to proteins that are expressed on those cancer cells. Okay, so it's a targeted therapy. It's a very, it's a brand new uh, approach or class of drugs. And what they found is that if patients get preconditioned with chemotherapy agents, then these drugs become more efficacious. They work better. Okay, so what, what Juno was saying caused the deaths was the addition of a chemotherapy agent known as flutarabine to their existing preconditioning regimen. Uh, once they did include that, we'll call it flu for short, uh, once they started including flu, that's when they started seeing these problems. So they went back to the FDA and said, what if we just get rid of flu? We won't use flu anymore in the preconditioning regimen. And, you know, obviously within days, uh, the FDA had reviewed the documentation and said, yep, that's okay. You can continue enrolling. We'll restart the trial. From now on, though, just use that one preconditioning chemotherapy agent. It was really, really interesting to me to see how quickly that decision turned around. I remember in some of our initial coverage on Fool.com, when we saw the red light from the FDA, our writers were saying, yeah, we're not really sure how long it might be before Juno is allowed to proceed. And then just days later, it was July 13th, that the FDA said, yep, you can proceed if you use, if you exclude flu and you proceed as we've talked about. Right. The FDA had about 30 days. Uh, they could have taken as long as that to review the information. And they did it, they did it in a couple days. I was one of those writers who was saying, I don't know, I, it, could, it could take weeks. Who knows how long it'll be? Um, obviously, though, the, the FDA has made a commitment to accelerating the approval of cancer drugs, especially novel cancer drugs. So that's probably why they wasted no time looking at this because the patient population that this drug treats is a tough to treat population. It's relapsing and recurring acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL patients. And these patients have undergone two, three, four different uh, treatments prior to this. So there are not a lot of treatment options available to them. And that, you know, is why this was such, I guess, an important thing for the FDA to look at. But what, from an investor standpoint, it also is a good reminder of what foolish investing is all about, right? Because we saw the stock lose a third of its value and regain, you know, a lot of what it lost in less than a week. I will say the stock is still down pretty substantially from before this news came out at all. So yeah. what do you think? Good buying opportunity? Um, yes, and <laughs> for risk for risk tolerant investors, yes. I mean, I actually, with a caveat, I actually prefer another CAR T developer more, uh, and that's Kite Pharmaceuticals or Kite Pharma. Symbol there is K I T E. That's not um, the one I thought you were going to say. What's that? It's not the one I thought you were going to say. I'll, I'll pitch a different one when you're done with Kite. All right, all right. The reason I like Kite is they are also working on a CAR T therapy. They do use flu in their preconditioning uh, regimen, which is a little bit worrisome, but they haven't reported any deaths. And the dosing that they use of this flu psi preconditioning regimen is far smaller uh, doses of these chem chemotherapy agents. So, you know, we'll assume that they've, they've, at this point, that they've achieved a Goldilocks, um, you know, they've figured out what the, what the right combination is in the dosing of it. Uh, we're going to get results from a trial in uh, diffuse large B cell um, cancer later this year. If those results are good, they plan on filing for FDA approval before the end of 2016. Conceivably, that could allow for this drug to hit the market and begin generating out revenue for 
uh, investors next year. Juno had anticipated also delivering uh, its JCAR 15 to market as early as next year, but even with the delay, and then now they're going to have to, f- you know, f- you know, get these patients uh, treated with just the one chemotherapy agent. We may not see that ju- drug JCAR um, 15 hit the market until 2018, and I think that's why you're seeing the shares still trading down a little bit from where they were, even though the trial got uh, the trial halt got lifted pretty quickly. Makes sense. And I think Kite's shares actually took a pretty big hit when this Juno news came out because they are working on fairly similar therapies. Right. And again, because they have that, they you're using flu in their uh, preconditioning cocktail. Yeah, that's a huge so part of it. I think that that made people a little bit nervous. You know, could we be see a surprise from them prior to the data? We haven't seen that yet, though. So I promised I would do a quick pitch on another option if you're interested in the CAR-T space. This one's called Bellicum, and it's a little bit of a a dark horse. It's way smaller than the other two. Kite's got a market cap of around uh, $2.5 billion. Juno's got $3 billion. Bellicum is tiny. It's $367 million. But one of the big issues that's going on right now with CAR-T is safety. I mean, it's something that we just saw with Juno and something that has been following these CAR-T drugs the, their entire existence. So, Bellicum thinks that it's found the answer to this safety dilemma. It's got its own proprietary technology called CID, which basically creates this molecular switching platform. And what that means is that they think that they've found a way to turn these T-cells on or off. That way, if you get a patient that all of a sudden is showing signs of any of these these bad after-effects of CAR-T treatment, your neurotoxicities, your cytokine release syndrome, you can just switch them off. And it's a really intriguing idea, and it's still early in development, but I would be shocked, actually, if one of these other two, Juno or Kite, didn't have their eyes on Bellicum. I don't know how that will play out. I haven't spent a lot of time with that uh, stock, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave leave investors to do their own research on it. Um, I'd be very curious to see what kind of partnerships, if any, they've in, uh, they've instituted so far. And I'd also like to know uh, what they have for cash kicking around on their balance sheet uh, for their runway. But yeah, the, this whole space is very intriguing. It's very fast moving, and a lot's going to be coming out over the course of the next year. Trial data, potential safety risks, all sorts of crazy information. So, speaking of news coming out in the near future, we thought it would be a good time to do a little bit of earnings preview now that earnings season has officially kicked off. Johnson & Johnson actually reported this morning, as in Tuesday the 19th. Remember, we're pre-recording this a day early. So, we've got J&J that already reported, and then maybe we can do a little preview after that of what might be coming next. Sound good? Yeah, absolutely. J&J reported second quarter sales and earnings that were better than industry watchers had hoped. Uh, They delivered $18.5 billion in sales, um, which is very solid, up about 4%. I mean, that's not... It's not great, right? But we're talking about big pharmaceutical companies here. Usually, you're not going to see double-digit growth rates in big pharma. Um, so, 4%, that's fine. You know, so you had some currency headwinds that weighed that down just a little bit. Um, but overall, I think it was a pretty solid report. It sort of sets the bar for you know the upcoming reports that are become, coming out of you know other big pharma companies like Pfizer in the coming weeks. You mentioned currency, and that's been a huge thing weighing Johnson & Johnson's earnings back for a while now. But interestingly, the currency hit was just 1.4 percentage points, which is less than half the impact from the second quarter a year ago in 2015. So, they're hoping that this won't be damaging them quite as much, but 
you know, remains to be seen. You can't predict these kind of things. But again, you know, that long-term foolish investing, we're not looking to predict currency headwinds. And that's why you really do want to look at operational growth. And if you look at their operational growth, it looks pretty good, particularly in pharmaceuticals. Operational increase of 9.7%. That's that's pretty darn good. Yeah, and it was all domestic too. It was all U.S. You know, I think the U.S. pharmaceutical business grew by about 13% year over year. And the other thing investors should recognize is that that's occurring even as it's losing out on sales from its once popular hepatitis C drug, Elysio, uh, which you know has lost market share as new drugs have come onto on the market. So it's overcoming that headwind and still being able to grow double digits here domestically. Some of the drugs to keep an eye on, you've got Imbruvica, uh, you've got Darzalex, Invacana, Stellara. There are actually a ton of irons in the fire here, and all of these drugs posted pretty solid growth. Yeah, I mean, there are a few that I like to watch. I'm, I'm keeping my eye on quarter after quarter here for Johnson & Johnson. So just to let investors know what's happening with those, Imbravica is one of them. Uh, in Q1, sales had jumped 125% to $261 million. In Q2, they grew about 92% to $295 million. No one's gonna, No one's going to fault them on that, right? But maybe we have to start looking at it and saying, okay, we've reached a certain level where we can't expect sales to continuously double year over year for this for this uh, cancer agent. Um, still very good. We see that at you know a 1.2, 1.3 billion dollar run rate. Um, I was also very interested in seeing whether or not uh, they would report individual sales for Darzalex. Um, that's their multiple myeloma drug that got approved last year. They did not break out those sales yet. They did say that sales are growing. We just don't know how much. Uh, by how much yet. And, and that they're expecting additional indications on that one. Yeah, and what'll be interesting too is, I mean, it was the same situation a few years ago when they came out with Invocana, right? They, they didn't break those sales out until they became much more meaningful. And you look at that drug and, you know, Invocana, they they have sales now that are at better than a one point, I think it's almost a $1.6 billion annualized run rate uh, for that type 2 diabetes drug. So just the fact that they're not breaking out Darzalexia, investors shouldn't draw any major conclusions to that. But you will want to watch quarter after quarter just to see you know, whether or not that's winning away some share in the pre-traded uh, multiple myeloma market. Exactly. One more thing to keep an eye on going forward uh, is the upcoming biosimilar impact on Remicade. Yeah, that's that's key. I mean, we've got some fast-growing drugs at J&J, like Stellara, psoriasis drug that's growing very quickly. They've got Zytiga, which is a multi-billion-dollar prostate cancer drug, which is very strong. They've got um, Zeralto, which is an anticoagulant. The sales are very strong. So they've got things that can overcome the headwinds to Remicade. But you know, Remicade's a $1.8 billion a quarter drug. Just you know, per so this quarter. Is- that's uh, incredible. That is a really big drug right there. Yeah, so you need a lot of these other drugs to do very well to insulate, I guess, Remicade from the risk uh, when Pfizer finally does launch their approved Remicade uh, biosimilar. That's supposed to happen sometime in the next six months. Yeah, they, they do say that the biosimilar competition is not built into their guidance right now, and that's understandable since the drug was just approved in April, the biosimilar that is, and it won't launch until later this year. But going forward, 2017, for sure, this is going to be something that Johnson & Johnson will have to overcome. Right, and from our investors trying to figure out, well, how should I, how should I plan for that? Um, you know, overseas where biosimilar drugs um, have been approved previously and been around longer, um, sales, it's knocked off, it's won about 30% market share. Um, so, you know, keep bear that in mind. We have a $6 billion drug, 30% market share, $1.8 billion potential headwind. 
And then you figure over time, you know, as um, doctors get more comfortable with those biosimilars, you'll probably see the market share percentage climb for those drugs. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's important enough where investors should be tracking that and seeing how they're offsetting it. Sounds good. So that's your J&J recap on their earnings. Todd, what are you looking at going forward? We've got a bunch more biotechs and big pharmas that are reporting over the next month or so. Oh, yeah. It's going to it's gonna be fast and furious. Uh, listeners are going to want to pay a lot of attention to the fool in the coming weeks because we're going to have a lot of coverage on earnings for all of these big companies. I am watching with some intrigue Amgen. Um, and one of the reasons I'm watching Amgen is because, you know, we just were talking a little bit about biosimilars and the potential risks to J&J and Remicade. Well, Amgen's got some pretty big sellers that are also could face the sting of biosimilars soon, too. So I want to see whether or not their new drugs are making enough headway to kind of offset any headwinds that could, you know, pop up that from biosimilars there, too. Yeah, the name to watch there would be Enbrel. That's that's their big anti-inflammatory drug that could face biosimilar competition soon. Right, one point four billion dollars a quarter in sales and Enbrel sales could be in jeopardy if if we get a biosimilar approved by the FDA. Um, there also is a, a biosimilar uh, uh, underway by Coharis that uh, targets uh, uh, Nulasta which is their white blood cell boosting drug that's used in patients undergoing chemotherapy. Um, that could come to market sometime in the next year or two, who knows? I mean, so there, there are risks here to billions of dollars for the Amgen sales. Now, Amgen isn't just sitting back. I mean, they've got new drugs under development. They've got spent a lot of money in R&D, and they've got their own pipeline to biosimilars uh, targeting you know, other companies' drugs that are losing patent protection, you know, most notably uh, a biosimilar that targets uh, Humira. Yeah, they're, they're kind of playing both sides here, offense and defense. And by the way, for our listeners who might not know what a biosimilar is, it's essentially a generic version of a biologic drug. They're a little bit more complex, and so they're not quite as easy to duplicate as the generics that we're all very used to. Um, if you're interested in more information about them, I can totally send that your way. Email us at industryfocusatfull.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. Just wanted to get that out there in case anybody's scratching their head on what a biosimilar is. Yeah, I know. There's so many different terms we have to be familiar with as, as healthcare investors, especially when we're talking about uh, bio, uh, biotechnology and pharmaceuticals. Um, but hey, that's what we're here for, right? Yeah, we're here to help. <laughs> so, anything else to watch with Amgen? Um, again, uh, I would say probably the, the most important thing that I'm trying to figure out is whether or not payers are actually starting to reimburse for Repatha, which is their next generation cholesterol busting drug that won approval last summer and has pretty much been, we'll call it a dud for now. I mean, I think the sales are less than 20 million a quarter. So, you know, we'll see whether or not they've gotten any new uh, agreements in place with insurers and whether or not those sales are, are starting to march higher or not. So I'll be watching that. I totally agree with that one. Yeah, that will be super, super interesting to watch. I'll also add to our watch list, we talk on about hepatitis C on the show all the time. I'm also watching Gilead and Merck for their quarterly earnings. Gilead reports on the 25th of July, Merck comes out on the 29th. I want to know the first full quarter of sales from Zepatir, Merck's hepatitis C drug. And I also I kind of want to get a first peek at Epclusa, which we talked about on a pretty recent show. That's Gilead's new pangenotypic drug. And they're not going to have substantial sales of Epclusa. It was just approved. But I'm kind of looking for a little bit of commentary, maybe on the initial strategy or the pricing in Gilead's conference call. Right. Like, what's the inventory build situation look like, right? 
uh, that would be interesting, too, if they, they give us a little insight into that. For sure. All right, Todd, there's clearly lots to keep an eye on this earnings season. Anything else before I let you go? No, I hope you have a great week. Well, thank you very much. And thanks, as always, for doing the show with me. Uh, folks listening in, thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, leave us a review. And be sure to check out The Motley Fool's suite of podcasts at podcast.fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!